Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In 4 weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose 1 to 2 pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com/host. This is Writers on Film, the only podcast dedicated to books on cinema. Okay, today I'm going to be doing something a little special. This is a bonus episode which I'm going to uh drop in the middle of the week sometime, probably after the weekend. This is specifically for No Time uh No Time to Die, the new James Bond film, and I have had a conversation with the author and editor of the James Bond Archives published by Tashin, which will be available from the middle of October, Paul Duncan. Uh Paul is a James Bond expert as you will hear and he has worked on the James Bond archives for I think well it must be must be clocking on for 10 years I think um this is a new edition that's coming out to coincide with the film's release he has been on set many times and he has interviewed all the principals and he has had access exclusive access to all the archives so really we couldn't talk to anyone more qualified to put the film in context and to reveal some interesting tidbits of information. So, I hope you enjoy the conversation. If you wish, you can follow me on Twitter at @drjonty d r j o n t y and after the conversation if you still have time and patience, I will give my own sort of review of the film that a spoiler-filled review of the film if you've seen it to get well my own take, not really a review, but there you go, my own take. Thank you very much and enjoy the conversation. I 
what they call it, uh, on the way to the premiere, I go down, I pick up the tickets, I go down, uh, I'm on Bond Street, and I go past Aston Martin, and then, just after that, my shoes start to fall apart before I get to the premiere. Uh, literally disintegrating. So I'm, I, I'm on the uh, uh, the red carpet with my with the soles of my feet starting flip-flopping. These are they're called uh, Road. They're German-made, but I think they should rename them to E-Road. And then after the film, I, I have to walk to the to the underground, and it's pouring as rain. And the shoes just completely fall apart. Oh, and I, I'm, 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 I'm going in soles falling off. Yeah, so on the underground and on the drive back home, I'm doing it virtually barefoot. Oh, blimey. So, that, that, of all the things that you would think on your way to a James Bond premiere... I, I was telling my shoes, this is no time to die. You know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm, try- I'm trying to think of some really good shoe puns now. We were... In in tears of laughter, me mm. crying also, you know, but it was because it's the complete absurdity of dressing up, you know, in black tie, etc. And then and then this happening, it's just like crazy. I'm gonna go and see the film this evening. So without too many spoilers, what's your sort of capsule review? Well, I think that uh, it's visually stunning. It's mm-hmm. made by an auteur so the sensibilities are a bit different more human so it's about the character if you like what happens to a character which is it's sort of like an action john le carré because Mm. it's about the idea of what happens to a character who spends his life distrusting everybody including the woman he loves and of course, you you can't have a relationship with anybody if you distrust them. So, so this is, if you like, the tension of the uh, and the tragedy of that type of character. I'm really looking forward to it. I'm going to go and see it in Italian tonight, and then right. um, on Monday they have a English language version, original language version. I'm going to go and see it again. I think in English. Um, yeah, the, what do you call it? The uh, I mean, it is. There are uh, one-liners in it, and. So and there's uh, tons and tons of action in it. So, so there are different tones and intents throughout the. So each action scene has a different intent and a different in tone, mm-hmm. and a difference in tone. So, so I thought it was I was lucky enough to be on set several times. I was at Pinewood uh, multiple times during the production. So uh, I was able to see the development of the script and the story over it so and it just got better and better as it got through so but tell me something about that because i'd heard uh, rumors had gone around on the internet but i've also talked to people who were on the set and things and they were saying and i i, I got an impression that this was a troubled production you know there was injuries and there was uh, obviously the change of director was a, a pretty big high profile story for a while did you get any sense of that or how how were your feelings the thing is that if you go on to any film set where there's so much at stake, where so much is being trying to be done in such a short period of time, then things go wrong and things happen. The, if you like, it's the job of the producers, the director and the heads of department to solve all those problems and to keep moving forward with everybody trying to do the best that they can 
for the film. And that's the same on smaller films as well as big films. And it creates an, ama an amazing amount of pressure on everybody. And it's just a natural part of making these type of movies. Most stuntmen, right, if they're making an action movie, they start off okay. And then as they go through it, you know, there's more and more bruises, more and more padding. And, and this psychologically is what happens on these movies, not just Bond movies, all big blockbuster movies. So um, it's just that Bond gets a lot more media attention. So I just think it's a, a, a natural process of making these movies. And it's something that, you know, you, you've got to understand that every, everybody working on it is a person. They're going to say and do things uh, in, the, in the heat of the moment, right? That's not, not intended to harm or, you know, uh, insult or, or whatever. It's just a result of the amount of pressure people are are put under. That happens in every situation of any high-pressure job. If you like, the goalposts keep changing as as you do it, as you find out. It's, it's like if you've never done... When you're writing a story or when you're doing a painting or a sculpture or anything where you... Or, or building a, a piece of furniture, as you're making it, you're going to... The more you do it, the more you know about it and that you understand, oh, this, those marks that I made earlier on, that thing I did earlier, it wasn't the right thing. I need to adjust because now I know more than I did when I started this because I understand what it is I'm trying to do. And so you make changes and adjustments. So those are, if you like, from an artistic point of view, that you can do those things. And that's just a natural process. And one, one of the... I mean, I was talking to uh, uh, the heads of departments, you know, I interviewed them um, for the book. And um, one of the things that they, Peter Tilsley, I think, the production designer, and he said, oh, we've got to, uh, we've got to do a design for, uh, for the end. And we've got to do something for Bond to do at the end. And Carrie, Carrie Fukunaga, the, the director uh, and co-writer, he said uh, Bond at the end, Bond can't be just switching, you know, switches, you know, up and down. Right. He's got to be physically doing something. Uh, and so Peter came up with this device, this like cog device, pulleys and stuff that he, he has to actually physically do something. So so he's, uh, and he, he literally while I was there, he's, he's like doing doodles, you know, on a sheet of paper. Uh, and show me, oh, I'm thinking about doing it like this or like that. Now, this is well into the production. They've decided to to add or elaborate on this, and there's a particular vision of it, and there's an understanding of the psychology of, of Bond. And this a lot of this comes out of the fact that at the end of a very long shooting day, uh, Carrie, the producers, uh, Barbara, Michael, and Greg Wilson and Daniel Craig would all get together and have a script meeting at the end of each day in order to discuss the character, the story, and to improve it so that they would have notes for the following day and for the future. So this was a an ongoing process. It wasn't one person against another. It's a group of people working together under extreme high pressure. So they will make changes 
And that then ripples down through all the departments because obviously they then have to think on their feet and find ways to 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 get these things done do you think that it w- would that have been typical for every bond movie or do you feel that there, w- there was a particular attention being paid to this one because it was daniel craig's last and and perhaps mm-hmm. the, rep- the response to spectre had been a bit bit less what they had wanted no, it's the same on every Bond movie. You right. go back to um, From Russia With Love, you know, and they're filming in Istanbul and uh, they're going up and down and they plan to do a lot of the scenes uh, in the countryside, uh, like the boat chase at, at the end and the helicopter chase, etc. And, and they just, they ran out of boats. <laughs> they couldn't get the boats. Literally, they couldn't couldn't get the boats. So they had to cut that short, decide to give up on it, right? And then they went back to the to the UK. Very sadly, Pedro uh, Armandias, while they were in Istanbul, found out that he had uh, cancer, terminal mm. cancer. And so they rearranged all the the filming. I mean, they, you know, Pedro wanted to finish the film, right, and to finish his role. You know, mm. I mean, he it, it was an incredibly moving thing to do and so when they got back to the uk they completely changed all of the uh, the schedule so that all of his scenes um would be done first as soon as they got back so that then he could go back to 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 mexico where he sadly uh, passed away but that was a complete change because of that but also because they couldn't complete physically they couldn't do what they needed to do in Turkey. They then did a ton of filming in in Scotland for the uh, for for the chase, for the boat chase, and also for the the helicopter scene, etc. So this is consistently, you know, if there is an issue on the Bond movies, then they have to find a solution. I mean, there was famously on uh, which one was it? I think it's tomorrow is another day. They did tomorrow, their, tomorrow never uh, dies, uh, maybe. Tomorrow never dies. Yeah, I'm. I'm thinking of multiple films. I think you die, die another day, and tomorrow never dies. <laughs> yeah. yeah, tomorrow. Yeah, this this was the this was the film between the two. Yeah, mm. um, yeah, tomorrow never dies, and they shipped off. Literally, they put a ton of um, Chris Corbold had filled containers full of uh, equipment to go off to film in Vietnam. Uh, and then the it was on the ship. It was off there. And, mm. and in the end, they couldn't do it. They had the filming license revoked, yeah? Right. While the ship was on the water. So they had to find, they had to go to Thailand. They had to find another place for the boat to go and to film and to get permission. I mean, these things happen. And, and, one, of the, and, and one of the great things about the producers and the and the and the crew is that they roll with these punches and they and they find solutions and they get get it done so you know all these oh everything's going wrong everything's going wrong everything always goes wrong that's the default <laughs> yes yeah. yeah that's the default i wonder if they ever were tempted to say let's just do like the equivalent the film equivalent of a bottle episode let's just do a bond in england and 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 but but that would never sell you you know that that's not the yeah, yeah. that that's not the usp sales point of 
of the of the franchise. Mm. You know, Bond needs to go on location. It, it needs to be in multiple countries. Mm. It needs to be dressed to the gills, right? He needs to have gadgets. He needs to have action. He needs to have beautiful people around him, and he needs to have evil people around him and beautiful evil people. You know, so um, uh, and everybody has to be in danger. So that has to happen. It's the mixtures of that. It's the rearranging of all those elements in each of the movies that makes the movies as successful as they are. What's your What's your own relationship with Bond, Paul? When did you sort of? What was the first Bond film you saw at the cinema? Uh, it was a double bill, Thunderball, and On Her Majesty's Secret Service. Oh wow! My, my dad My dad took me to to see them, and um, and then they're long movies. They're both actually for for a child. They're both very long movies, but they were great. Then obviously seeing them on television. They used to be on television in the UK, uh, Christmas and Easter, I think. Uh, but it would always be a special occasion on a Sunday night, right? And it was a big, big deal that James Bond was on television uh, as a kid. And then the first, the first Bond that I saw on my own was The Spy Love Me, right. 1977. Uh, and I remember I w- we were on holiday in Cornwall, and and I went to. Uh, literally you know it's a bright sunny day and and i say to my parents look spy love me is on he's got this he's got this great car that goes underwater mm. <laughs> i need to see this movie right. <laughs> essentially you know in my mind right i mean at that time i, I had no idea about who had made the movies or or anything like that it was mm. it was just a movie i had no idea how movies were made um, but in my mind, I was thinking, um, this is like Thunderbirds, Joe 90 and Captain Scarlet, you know, with all these cool uh, vehicles and sinking buildings, you know, buildings that go on the ground and all this, everything, you know, all these secret places. And, uh, and in my mind, that's what James Bond was part of that. And little do, did I know that uh, Derek Meddings, you know, did, you know, the special effects and models and stuff for both, you know. So, but yeah, so that was, uh, so it was on this beautiful day, uh, my parents dropped me off at the cinema so that I could go and see this in go into the dark. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and see, uh, and see uh, The Spy Love Me. And that was... So do you have a, do you have a favourite Bond? Well, it's a bit like saying, do you have a favourite Doctor Who? Right. You, you know, that you come to accept at a certain point that each of them is a different character. Yes. And so they, so they bring a different thing to it. So I don't really have a, a favourite Bond, but I do think that some of there are certain moments or certain bits and pieces of Bond that are much better than other parts. You know, so, um, you know, they're either better directed or a better story, etc. So... So it really comes down to that. So now you want me to tell you which which of the films are like, etc. Yeah. All this, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Obviously, yeah. I'm not going to let you get away with that. So, uh, you're just turning me into a listicle. That's what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. Basically, yeah, okay. that, we'll headline the uh, the podcast. You know, uh, Paul Duncan's ten. <laughs> yeah. Ten listicles. Yeah, but don't join the words together. Yeah. Right. Uh, all right. Yeah, so Sean Connery uh, from Russia with Love, yes. right? As as always, 
the thing is that when I was doing the book, I was very aware um, the James Bond archives. Um, I was very aware that the films are were a lot of them are very much the same because really on Goldfinger, Goldfinger was the first film when they were making it where they changed the story significantly from Fleming's originals. Mm. So, um, and what they did was they discovered, if you like, the template for for James Bond, for James Bond as a film character. They found the template with Goldfinger, uh, and they followed that template pretty closely throughout uh, through many years. So you you would have the good Bond girl and the bad Bond girl. You had the villain. You had the you know the lair. You you had all all sorts of uh, you had the gadgets. You had a lot of things, uh, the DB5, the car chase, all, all the different elements really came together with Goldfinger. And it was like a, and also with the tone of the script. Uh, they found everything with that. But on Promotion with Love, it's a completely different story because it's set up as a suspense thriller. Essentially, Bond is walking into a trap. We know this because we are given other information to show that that essentially Spectre are setting up this trap for Bond. And so we see it step by step, Bond getting closer and closer into the uh, into the jaws of Red Grant and Spectre. And so if you like, the filming dynamic and the style of the filming is set up like a Hitchcock movie where you know that the bomb is going to go off, but you don't know when, and you're waiting for for that moment. So it creates a, a sense of suspense. And I've I've always liked that movie, you know, even before I've thought about it in that in, in those terms. Yeah. So that's always been one of my uh, one of my favourites. Also, I've always loved uh, You Only Live Twice. Right. Right, Roald Dahl scripted as well. In fact, that's something else that they'd um, started doing at that point as well, which was they would always have two sets of writers. This is actually from the from the very beginning, in fact, Dr. No. You always have two sets of writers, and one set of writers, generally, they would construct the story, mm. and they would, um, who the villain was, and if you like the locations and action points and things like this, if you like, they set up uh, the structure of the movie uh, and then the producers could go out and um, plan for that and get locations and set everything up with the stunts and production design and uh, all the different elements that you need in casting. Uh, And then you will have another writer or writers um, to come in who will who will polish the script and will polish the the dialogue in order to give it a bit of a, a sparkle. So, uh, for instance, on Goldfinger, uh, I think it was uh, Paul Den, who was actually an ex-agent himself and used to train the agent. So he's the guy used to train, you know, Christopher Lee, for example, who was a, a an SOE agent. You know, so all relating back to. Fleming's original, uh, Ian Fleming's original uh, career during the war as a uh, as a trainer of of agents, you know, secret agents. So, 
Which is also the subject of a new film. I think Operation Mincemeat features Ian Fleming, you know, in his role in the uh, in the real life sort of spy story that he recounts. Yeah, several people have tried to redo, you know, um, both in in film and in novels as well, as well as nonfiction, in order to reconstruct these times. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's a fascinating period. And in fact, when we were uh, when I was doing the when I was doing the book, I was talking to uh, Hillary and Stephen Saltzman, the children of uh, Harry Saltzman, uh, the one of the original producers on uh, on the movies. Uh, it was Harry Saltzman and Cubby Broccoli, and they said that they discovered uh, papers um, that seemed to indicate that Harry may have been uh, an agent during the war. That certainly some of the things that he was doing seemed to be like cover roles for the CIA. You know? oh, wow. or the, or it would have been OSS during the World yes. War II. But, um, but you know, not, nothing was proved, but they were showing me all these documents. And, you know, unfortunately, it wasn't, they weren't quite conclusive enough to, to, to say that he... He was an agent, but they seem to indicate that he was part of that world, if you like. Mm. Yeah, so, and in fact, Ian Fleming uh, sold the rights for the film and television to to Harry Saltzman, uh, but Harry Saltzman couldn't get the backing for in, in the film world, yeah. he, even, though, even though he'd worked on TV shows like um, uh, with Buster Crabbe as, as a... As a uh, foreign legionnaire there was uh, captain gallant or something like that it's called uh, and he did other things he couldn't find the backing for for if you like uh, to do a bond series you know a, a bond movie and uh, and luckily enough um a friend of his wolf mankowitz a writer had uh, said well wolf's friend Cubby broccoli has been looking to buy the rights for a long time yeah, and had actually missed out on on getting the rights um, uh, years earlier, and then that's the point that they the two of them were introduced, and as soon as it could be with his connections to United Artists and and to Hollywood, because Cubby was a uh, was a Hollywood producer, right? right? He had Hollywood connections, but he'd been working in the in the UK doing UK productions as Warwick films, uh, and basically the two of them together. It then went off and, and got the deal, I think, within an hour from United Artists to go ahead and make a, a Bond movie. Wow. So, um, so yeah, so th these connections, I always wondered whether Fleming allowed Harry to have those rights because of that connection. There's nothing proved, mm. you know, um, but, you know, it, it, you know, it's intriguing. You know. Just thinking about so you so you'd mentioned you only live twice as as a, another Connery Bond that you, that you yeah yeah because it's just bonkers. Let, yeah. Let's face it. I, I mean, but Bond it's basically you know Bond in space, and it was everything that you know like a kid, you know you know would want. Mm. Imagine you know a hideout in a volcano. Exactly. I mean, it is yes. it's like. You know, and it's got these, uh, it's got these Japanese twists and gadgets, and no, I mean, it, you know, picking up a car with a giant magnet, you know, and then dropping it into the, the sea. I mean, it was just such good fun. Yeah. So, always, you know, I mean, the thing is that 
each of the films have certain elements that are, are great. On the Majesty's Secret Service, such an unexpectedly emotional movie. And and also the, the music, John Barry's music in that is just superb. You know, it, it's just like um, the performances are in it seem real. Diana Rigg is, is just great in it. So you really feel... You, you, you feel as though it's another type of movie. You're seeing a different element to uh, to James Bond. I mean, at this point, you know, as a kid, I didn't read the books. So I had no inkling of what the books were like in relation to, to the movies. So this was a, a, a surprise to me. And in fact, while doing research on uh, the archives book, I found out that the, the, the script from On Her Majesty's Secret Service had actually been written originally for Sean Connery. And then at the last minute, they decided to do, yeah. I think it's You Only Live Twice, you know, in Japan. Of course, but the, yeah. uh, And it was, you know, it was like, uh, or it could have been an earlier one. I, I, I forget the exact detail. It's in the book anyway. Yeah, so I, I thought that that was interesting because Sean Connery doesn't really get to show much emotion. Uh, in his character there's only the point in thunderball i remember where where he has to tell uh, what he has to tell one of the characters that her brother was dead right mm. and before he does it he puts on his sunglasses so that she can't see his eyes oh yeah that's a nice moment right yeah. and yeah. and so i thought right he's he's hiding something because always the character has to hide his true feelings or his uh, what's going on underneath. He has to put an armour on. That's part of the idea of becoming, uh, of getting the licence to kill, mm. is that you have to find a way to disassociate yourself from the killing and from the guilt, etc., of of the actions that you do, as do many soldiers. So, um, and I think that's one of the things that, if you like, uh, that was one of the great things about Casino Royale, which which I think is probably the best, the best Bond of all, because you get that vulnerability of the character built into the story, that this is a guy who you get the feeling that he's a bit rough around the edges, and Vesper Lind is, um, you know, dressing him up, you know, in the tux and stuff like this. But you see, he's, you know, uh, even in the makeup, you you can see that he's a bit rough around the edges. You you'll notice like he doesn't always shave completely. He's a little bit rough, uh, and the hair is a little bit out of place. So it's always giving you these visual signals of what the character is like internally, and as well as the performance, of course, you know, from Daniel Craig. But that vulnerability and fallibility comes through. He's not indestructible, and at any moment. He could die, and and then how does he become Bond? He becomes Bond by Vesper Lind betraying him, you know. So because at that moment, that's why he says the name's Bond, James Bond, right at the end, because Vesper Lind has basically taken that rom the idea of romance and a life outside of his job. She's taken that away from him. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So he has to shut off that aspect of his life, uh, which obviously Inspector, you know, it comes around the other way in that maybe there is an opening for him to to leave that life. Yeah. So 
so these things are have become more real you know and have become more a uh, part of the story in uh, with daniel craig's tenet which are great also uh, timothy dalton license to kill is is just brilliant yeah, I was, I was going to say that there seems to be... I, I re-watched all the... My, well, just to be clear, my relationship with Bond is as follows. You know, I obviously started watching the movies on TV. I think my first cinema Bond was For Your Eyes Only. And then from then on, I watched every Bond release on the cinema. Yeah, um, yeah same and, here. Until from, the present from, day. Yeah, from Spy Love Me, right, I've, I've seen every one of them at the cinema. Right. So the same and when i was a kid i also read i read all the books i read the uh the pan you know those yeah. classics yeah, yeah. you you just find in secondhand bookshops all over the place not anymore <laughs> well exactly yeah. No, yeah, I, yeah it's funny it's funny that they've sort of disappeared so and then there's a bit when i was in my sort of 20s when i before gold uh golden eye came out where i really yeah sort of felt oh do i even want to go is it is it something yeah. i liked as a kid i'm not really into it anymore it's not something you know it's not something that even from a sort of modern political point of view i'm particularly interested in and then i went to see golden eye oh, no no I'm, I'm still on i'm still up for yeah. this this is still enjoyable but but what i noticed is uh, and re very recently during the pandemic i uh during the lockdown i rewatched yeah. the the from you know, from Doctor No to 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 Spectre, I rewatched them all, and I thought that there seems to be always this push and pull of them becoming spectacular, more spectacular, and then there's always a moment where they go, you know what, we've got to go back to the original novel, we've got to go back to the original idea of the character. Yeah. So even for your eyes only, for instance, feels like it's a reaction to Moonraker. So, yeah. Um, you know, I mean, the Roger Moore Bonds, to be honest, that for me, they're the ones that have absolutely not aged uh, as well as as some of the other bonds you know they, they yeah. feel older than the connery bonds for some reason they're just um yeah they just don't work for me anymore um I, I do think it's a reaction to violence you know the idea of comic book violence being perhaps uh, and violence without repercussions um no, I don't think it's that, Paul. I think it's. I tell you what, I think think it is. I think it's that they they don't feel to me like sincere films. They don't feel like they're actually trying to be movies. They feel much more like they're. You know, there are so many sort of jokes in them, and there are so many, yeah. you know, looks to camera, and and it's yeah. just at a certain point, it's just like, look, if you guys aren't taking it seriously, you know, yeah. why, why should I? And and they seem to sort of that that sense of humor and that comedy it's not that it's not even that it's comedy it's that the comedy itself isn't funny it's it's yeah. you know it's like dad jokes it's a series of dad jokes and there's a, a, a there's a scene that that infuriates me in um the man with the golden gun where yeah. they have the corkscrew car stunt uh, yeah. And there's a slide whistle that accompanies yeah. it and it's just like man that's the best stunt in the movie and you've played it for laughs. It seems it yeah. seems almost disrespectful of of what you've achieved. You know, I I absolutely agree with you on that. That 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 slide whistle on it, I think, ruined the stunt. Mm. Yeah, mm. but but I think the other aspect of that is that you have to remember that they were going for that type of comedy. Oh, this sure. Is, this is the the Burt Reynolds uh, period, Smokey and the Bandit. This is when. The, this type of comedy, this, if you like, release, is is what was, 
you know, popular at the cinema and was part of Bond's IP at the time and also part of the Roger Moore persona that he continued from The Saint and also The Persuaders, yeah? Right, absolutely, So, yeah. So if you, if you like, the, the characters of Bond aren't just influenced by the producers, but they're influenced by the actors who are playing them. So in the same way, I mean, I mentioned Doctor Who before. It's this, it's the same idea that each each actor brings something that's unique to them to the to the role to the character, and they develop it, you know, in order to. So this is why Pierce Brosnan, you know, he has this these action chops, but you know, which is reminiscent of Sean Connery, say, and mm. Timothy Dalton. He has this serious element. But then he can go into that comedy role, which is more reminiscent of Roger Moore. So he sort of comes somewhere in between the two. You know, and Timothy Dalton, you know, they really wanted to get back to a more serious Bond, more associated with um, the novels, you know, and closer to the novels. But they had this six-year wait and a court case, etc. And then, you know, and then when they came back, they decided to go with, with Brosnan, who had been one of the original people they wanted um, uh, earlier on. And so uh, I think really Daniel Craig is, they'd found the right actor at the right time for them, uh, for the producers, for um, Michael G. Wilson and Barbara Broccoli, to go back to the original Bond that was in the in the books. They'd also got the rights back to Casino Royale, uh, which, you know, the rights had been sold to um, to others uh, in the 60s, which is where we get the 1960s movie with Woody Allen, David Niven and Orson Welles, etc. Oh, so you weren't referring to that one as your favourite Bond then? Funnily enough. <laughs> I think. No. Um, but, uh, but, and why not? Why not? It's got Peter Sellers in it. And Ursula Andress. It's got Peter Sellers uh, for like the first 25 minutes and then he drives off the film and is never seen again. <laughs> you know, um, his contract was up. What could he do? But the, um, uh, uh, but yeah, but when they got the rights back, it gave them the perfect opportunity to go back to the, if, if you like, the characterization of, of Bond. I mean, M- Michael G. Wilson and Barbara Rockley had always wanted to go back to this, to the, to the Fleming Bond, mm. if you like, to that character, if you like, Fioros only, because Michael G. Wilson was one of the co-writers on a lot of these movies as well, Richard Mabel. Fioros only was trying to get back to that as as well, as well as License to Kill, mm. um, which I think is a, is a really good movie. And a movie that I think Christopher Nolan must like, since he keeps stealing bits and pieces <laughs> of, <laughs> of it for his movies. But um, yeah, so yeah, and I, I think um, yeah, I think I, I think the the Craigs um, have really followed that agenda. Yep. So yeah, I think I think they've been great uh, moments and they've been great stunts and they've been great characters all the way through. Even the Roger Moore ones, they've been great moments and and uh, uh, and great stunts and lines, etc. But um, but I I. I, I think that they've 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 cracked it with Daniel Craig. 
Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I don't want to dunk too much on Roger Moore because he was, you know, I watched them as a kid. I have a lot of affection for them and Spyro Love Me, Underwater Cars and Moonraker and Jaws and all that, uh, you know. Well, you know, if, I mean, when you look at, they're, they're in the, for the Lotus Esprit, they're doing a high-speed chase. They don't have anything, you know, the Lotus Esprit can go fast. So how do you film that? What you do is you get another Lotus Esprit and you, and you take out the back and you put a camera in the back of it, right? And you have two Lotus Esprits going at high speed down these windy roads. I I love that stuff. The fact that, and when I was doing the research and finding behind the scenes photos of these things um, uh, being made and happening. Oh, and there's a helicopter in the background as well. Of course, there's always you know, a helicopter, of course. Yeah, you were, with Caroline Munro in it. So... You know, there is nothing that they're all super sexy. I, I think that the uh, the other aspect of it is that a lot of your reaction to these things are about the age at which you first encounter them and watch mm. them and whether the films grow up with you or you grow with the films. So, so for example, the, I, I get this all the time with certain books as well and TV series, etc., that something that you enjoyed as a child may not be appropriate for you as an adult Absolutely. because because it doesn't have something for you to to hang on to and to love and enjoy and to respect yeah in the same way when you're young your relationship to violence is very blasé when you get older and perhaps have uh, and are thinking about uh, death or you 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 find out either through family, having family, having children, uh, relationships with others, you did change and develop as a person. So your relationship to violence and to interpersonal dynamics, to, to love and relationships changes. And so some things become less acceptable to you. Mm. I remember when I, when my son was born, you know, my re- relationship to uh, to violence and what children should see as violence uh, it changed right and it was something that you know uh, i didn't expect you know but also I, I began to see things through his eyes as he was growing up which was very interesting and mm. i saw the i saw the films again while doing the book through his eyes so he discovered james bond and we watched them all in order as, when did, when as did you could... start when did you start doing the book paul what was the background to to you uh, starting on that well actually it's it's quite funny because uh, when i uh, first did a job interview with with, with tashin essentially because i'm a, a freelance i'm a freelance uh, editor writer etc uh, benedict tashin i think it was around 2001 i met him uh, you know to to see whether i could do whether he wants me for to do any work for him and one of the things he said is oh i've always wanted to do a big book on James Bond Mm. and uh, it wasn't until eight years later 2009 um, that he said oh we should do that book on James Bond he said he'd get in contact with the producers a couple of months later I get um, contacted by Jenny McMurray from Eon the producers Mm. and she said oh can we meet to talk about doing a a book so sure let's meet and uh, I say hello to Jenny and I said oh when did Benedict get in contact with you Oh, we haven't heard from Benedict. Basically, Tashin and Eon had the same idea at the same time. Oh, right. <laughs> so, okay. Which was great. 
you know, so it, it made it, you know, very, very easy to do a contract, et cetera, and all this sort of thing. So really it was 2009 that uh, I started, was given complete access to everything. I, this is the first time any book or anybody had really been given access to everything. I mean, I, I spent a year just doing research. So there were over a, a million photos for, imagine all the productions, mm. million photos, and I had to see every single one of them. All the contact sheets and the original necks and wow. everything. It was wow. just like to die for. And um, so, and then I got access to the uh, warehouse where they have all the documentation, production documentation, scripts, props, costumes, everything, artwork, every, everything you can think of. Top secret location, somewhere outside London. Cannot reveal it. Okay. But, <laughs> but, but it was really amazing. And that was, uh, I did all the research was with uh, Meg Simmons, who runs the archives. Right. She's great. I mean, she and Jenny and everybody at Eon were just brilliant. And then I had access to all of those. And then going to uh, America, to uh, to Dan Jack, which is the parent company of Eon, mm-hmm. uh, if you like the business end, and then getting access to all the legal documents, etc. Because I approach things as a historian, as I think I, I've mentioned to you before. So yeah. I, I like if if I can't put a date in the book unless I've seen a document with that date on it. Right. So I can't say that the contract was signed on so and so if I don't see the contract was signed on so-and-so. Right. Or it didn't happen then, unless I see the daily production report saying that it happened then. Yeah? Yeah. So so that that's that's my if you like forensic approach to the thing. And they were they were great. And they were uh, I remember I went to Den Jack and stuff is in storage, so they had to pull it from storage. And I I went into this room and there were just piles and piles of boxes full of documents, you know, oh for God. me to pour through. And that, that was great. Um, and even even among that, I found a copy of one of Ian Fleming's TV scripts that he had done before before the film series. Right. You know, he, he had tried to work, he had tried, he put together various TV scenarios uh, for a, a Bond TV series. You know, he, he'd written, like, small things, you know. Yeah. So I saw copies. So it was like, it, it was great, you know, just, just to see all this. But you also include um, sort of non-Eon productions as well. I mean, you include Casino Royale and you include Never Say Never Again. Yeah, because I also got to see all of MGM archives. Right. And, M- and MGM, um, and now they bought United Artists and uh, Bond was originally... United Artists. So it, what happened was, because over the years, all these things have become conglomerated. Yeah, they've joined. Right. So in fact, the rights for Never Say Never and Casino Royale all fall under the same umbrella now. So ah, I could okay. I I could include them all, and there was no problem with me doing that. In fact, for the 1960s Casino Royale, I mean, just to give you an idea, I I went to New York. And I met with Sam Shaw's family. He's mm-hmm. great special photographer. Sam and his son Larry Shaw uh, had been on set taking photographs of the original 
Casino Royale. So so I, I got to spend the day with the family. They were lovely. They took me out to their the house and were eating and they were showing me all this stuff. It was it was it it was lovely. And then when I got back, I found out that Joseph uh, Karoff um, was only like lived three blocks from from where I was staying from from the um, from the hotel I was staying staying in. And Joseph Karoff was the guy who. Do you know the 007 logo? Yes. You know, where, where the seven becomes the gun? Yeah, yeah. He designed that. Oh, wow. For for the poster, right? Uh, for the American poster, I think. And for one of the posters. And uh, he was only living three blocks from where... So I just rang him up one morning mm. and he says, yeah, come along. So I spent uh, a couple of hours with him, you know, and he was telling me like little stories about uh, how he did it, you know, and stuff like that. Yeah, it's just like just little things that yeah. all just pop up and you never know. So this is what happens when you do these things that you never know what's going to happen or what's going to pop up. And you have all these little little memories of of the making of the book that that go with it. And that was in a, in addition to the making of it's the same as making of the movies. Mm. You know that the that you find that a lot of the people who work on the movies, their relationship to the movie is a, is not about the final movie that you and I see at the cinema. The relationship to it is the making of it yeah. and the contacts and the relationships that they make. Yeah. And I, as I was doing all this research, I found that, you know, not only have you got the, the family connection in terms of the producers, you've got Cubby Broccoli, and then his stepson, Michael G. Wilson, who comes into it, who was actually an extra in Goldfinger. And he was telling me that that story as well. And then became a, a writer uh, on it with Richard Mayborn. He, um, and then a producer, he worked his way up. You know, he learned the, the job of producer by doing different elements. And then Barbara doing likewise. She's working with the, on the second unit, for instance, on License to Kill. You know all the trucks and everything, all all that. She mm. was handling a lot of that in, in in Mexico, and she worked her way up. So it became so it's a family business now. Mm. Greg Wilson, um, Michael's uh, son, over the past few movies, he's been learning how to produce the movies and getting more and more responsibility as 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 he goes through, as he learns more. And that family element, I realised, was reflected within the crews because a lot of them working. Pinewood, and you would get the Lamont family, you know, or the Corbold family, you know, or the Udell family, uh, and other families all working through multiple movies. Yeah, intergenerational you know. sort of. Uh, yeah. yeah. So, so it becomes about family. Ultimately, the, that's what the and and that's really when I thought, you know, the plurality of voices, you know, of all these people, of all these families that worked on the. The movies was really what was what made the movies because it is about this group of people banding together like a circus a move moving circus having to deal with the travail of of work you know of the different weather conditions of of things breaking and going wrong but still at the end of the day the show must go on they must whatever happens you know in their their life or, or business or personal situations they will they will finish the movie and i thought that was that was the admirable thing about the movies 
that I wanted to to show in the book and to show it through the plurality of, of, of voices, which is why it's an oral history with you know over 150 different voices. And, and that was, you know, that was that was my you know, I didn't know that going into the book, but that's where it became, you know, once I understood what the situation was and what the what Bond is all about. Because ultimately, even though Bond is a, a lone wolf, he has M and Moneypenny and Q, you know, and Felix Leiter. He has this group, this family, this working family around him in order to help him achieve everything he does. So even though he puts himself, uh, his life on the line, you know, for Queen and Country, he has these others who understand what he's doing and that he is a, a true and honourable person and they help him achieve those ends, even if they're not always totally by the book. And the first edition of the book came out in 2012 for Skyfall. So I was on set and did interviews for, for Skyfall and and what you find out is that, and likewise for Spectre, uh, and likewise for uh, No Time to Die. I, I was just looking last night, and I, I've got some figures here. I started on this latest edition in March 2019 with the script as it was at that point. And I did a, over a half dozen visits to Pinewood. I did 17 interviews, uh, over 18 hours of tape, you know, well, yeah. electronic media, I should say. But I've got to cut that down to seven and a half thousand words, and that includes text captions and quotes on, on 24 pages. And I finished in May 2020. So the thing is that I had some fantastic talks with, you know, Peter Tilsley and, you know, Chris Corbold and uh, Alex Witt and all, you know, lots of great people on the uh, Linus Sangren and Carrie Fukunaga and uh, Barbara, Michael and Greg. And, uh, you know, it, it was great, you know, talking to them all. But if you like the conversational aspect of it, you know, the little asides, the jokes, etc., I had to cut out, you know, because I, I just didn't have the space in the, I just didn't have the physical space yeah. in the book, in the book, you know, in order to include all those, you know, which is, but, which is funny because it's the same with the the movie is as as well, in that you see in the script development that there are certain like little asides and little bits and beats etc in the scripts, and as the films are being made and developed, and you you see these fall by the wayside. Right. You know, it really is sheared off in order to keep the story and momentum going. You know, it's just an interesting process. We're going to have to close in a moment as well, but sure. I, really, I really wanted to have a final sort of get your final take on, on the, the Craig era as it comes to an end. Because I agree with you. I think, <coughs> excuse me, when, when Craig turns up, the quality of the films just seems to rocket in, in every in every department and i feel that the the decision they made to basically turn it into a saga which is a, a complete departure for bond uh, you know i mean there were always little callbacks and little references throughout all of sure. the films but yeah, yeah. there was never a sense that you know quantum of solace begins right after 
Casino Royale ends, and that yeah, yeah. was that was really new. Um, so how how do you look at that that his tenure now it's come to an end? I, I should say I talked to Daniel as well, and I asked him like this exact question about the saga, and he said that it really developed by accident over the making of the movies. So in other words, that each time they made the movie, they were looking at the character aspect of Bond and what the character would do next, sort of more by accident than design. So if you like, more as a part, as a natural part of the process of writing and developing and making the movies, they've made the saga, yeah? So yeah. there was there was ne- there, there was never an idea. Oh, we'll start here and we'll end there. Well, actually, the, they knew exactly how they wanted to end it. They didn't know, as you'll find out tonight, John. Um, <laughs> uh, th- they knew exactly how they wanted to end it, but they didn't know which movie they were going to end it on. Right, yeah, I see. So, um, so this was yeah. So, so that was an accident, but. A, an accident that was a natural part of the process of making this character. And I think that what they've done is that they've taken the vulnerability and the fallibility and the psychological effect of being a a, a killer, um, somebody with a license to kill, which was in the Fleming novels. And you can see the character of Bond disassembling we would probably call it a post-traumatic stress disorder now and i i think that fleming had that uh, and they've and they've used that uh, and i think they've created the defining bond i mm. can't i you know at at the end they do say uh, i mean at the very end of the movie of no time to die they do say you know james bond will return you know, which is, you know, fantastic. Mm. Um, but I think that what what Craig and the producers and the writers and the directors have done is they've turned Bond into uh, a human being and they've turned him into a character who, who will live not just as a, a wish fulfillment character, but with a character with 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 depth. And I, you know. I, I applaud them. I think they've done a, a magnificent job. So, so do you think the follow-up when they go? I mean, they've already said they've, they're not going to even talk about casting until twenty twenty-two anyway. Sure. Um, and that seems respectful as well of Craig to give him give him a give him a moment of you know. I'm sure they have lots of ideas. Yeah. All right. I, I mean, to give you an example. There are some in the scripts. There are always ideas. So in development scripts, there are always ideas that are chopped, but if they're good ideas, they end up later on yeah, in, right. in, a, in another movie. And uh, I remember doing, when we were doing Spectre, I had this this whole section on some of the earlier drafts and it was cut out, right, of the, of, of the chapter, you know, and I went, darn, <laughs> or, mm. or something stronger. Uh, and, um, but, you know, the, the, this happens, but for for this version of the book, they're put back in because they used some of the ideas or or or, or developments of those ideas right. in in the new movie. You know, so that's why they cut it in the first place, you know. Yeah. But um um you know so and I think that they always have ideas. 
And it's just a matter of where that idea will lead them in, in the future. Yeah, I'm just wondering if they're going to continue, there's going to be a sense of continuation or if it's going to be like, okay, we'll hermetically seal this and we'll, we'll like a Batman film, we'll just totally, this is a totally different thing. Yeah, or Doctor Who. In, yeah, in, yeah. In, in a sense, you know, I, I know they have continuity within within Doctor Who, but, you know, or, or Star Trek. Look at right. what happened with Star Trek, or Mission Impossible even, you know, from the TV series to, to the films. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, there is, we live in a world where, you know, it's it's at the end of the day, it's just entertainment, and it's about how we want to be entertained. Mm -hmm. Do we want to be entertained with something that's serious or comedic? You know, do we want to be entertained with something that's, you know, that's mysterious? Mm. You know, mm. that makes us think or, you know, it, it's, you know, we're, we are full of different emotions and we can be entertained in many different ways. And um, and I think that the Bond movies with the different Bond leading actors all entertain in a slightly different way. And I, I think that's great. And I'm sure that whatever the future holds, it will be entertaining because these producers know how to entertain a worldwide audience yeah. um, and will just be in entertained in a different way by a, a new actor with uh, with his own personality and his own things to bring to the character. Oh, well, I'm really looking forward to it tonight and I'm looking forward to reading the new version of, of the James Bond archives, which will be out when, Paul? Uh, October 12th. It's full of spoilers, uh, etc. As well as images that have not been released as we speak yet, with a lot of exclusive material and, as I say, tons of interviews that I've done uh, that I've included in, in the book. Exclusive to the James Bond archives. Brilliant. I will be getting my copy, definitely. Thank you so much for joining me again, Paul. And this is this is going to go out as a special bonus episode as well. So I will look forward to, to speaking to you at some point in the future about uh, whatever your next project is. I look forward to it, John. Thanks a lot, Paul. And you, you didn't even ask for my book. The recommended book, yeah, but I was good. This is why I was good doing this as a as a as, as an extra, of, an extra. And uh, uh, did you have another recommended book? I uh, for James Bond, yes, I do. Oh, okay. Well, give me your recommended book for James Bond then. Well, my recommended book for James Bond is "When the Snow Melts" by Cubby Broccoli and Donald Zegg. Have, oh, right. Have you come across it? No, I haven't read it. I haven't. I haven't. I don't even know about this. Uh, tell me more. Well, I. I only well. This is basically Cubby Broccoli's autobiography that was that he completed um, just before he, he passed away, and uh, it's basically he he was interviewed by Donald Zeck, who was uh, this great newspaper man who died recently, actually um, mm -hmm. lived to a ripe old age. Great character, and yeah, they came up with this uh, autobiography when the snow melts, and it tells his story of as them as the Broccolis coming from Italy. Right, where they where they grew broccoli and brought it to America, and um, and that was the family business. And then found a job uh, in Hollywood, you know, as an agent, and the people he met in Hollywood, etc. And then uh, his basically his life in the film business, and then uh, going on to Bond and telling stories about that. It is really a really really great old fashioned 
biography with lots of name dropping, lots of um, uh, amusing stories. It's a sort of, it's a raconteur's dream. You know, it really is great. It's personal. It's got feeling to it. The thing is that when you when you read a lot of stuff about Bond, it's all very technical. And what I love about this is that the the feeling of humanity in it, right, right, right in, yeah. in in this book, and and it was like when I meet, you know, Michael G. Wilson, Barbara Broccoli, I get that feeling of humanity in yeah. it, and I understand why they're so uh, emotional about uh, about the series and about the the character um and that really comes through and barbara you know talks about her father as well when i interviewed her last for uh, no time to die you know so so these stories are still alive and i think that this aspect of humanity that comes through in this this book inform the series and um and give you the reason why this series is so successful even though it can seem blasé and technical and mechanical because people are so interested in how films are made but i love this human element to it and that's really why i i recommend the book excellent so that's called when the snow melts that's correct and um it should be easy to find it's, brilliant uh, Oh, th- thanks so much, Paul. I uh, really appreciate it. And, um, and yeah, I, I'm, I am looking forward to reading the, uh, <laughs> the new version once I've, uh, once I've seen the movie. Okay, that's great. So, all the best to you, John. So that was my conversation with Paul Duncan. There was a special bonus episode. Uh, I've also I also wanted to talk just very quickly about uh, my own reaction to uh, No Time to Die, which I managed to see uh, last night. So just after after I had the conversation with Paul, basically, um, this is this is going to be spoilery. So I've put it at the end so that you can cut it out if you don't want to uh, have anything spoiled. I'm assuming you've already watched it. I thought that the film was um, a little bit too long. I thought that it wasn't the best in the series. Uh, I think Casino Royale, Skyfall and Quantum of Solace, probably in that order, are my top three. Um, I did think it was better than Spectre, although I don't think Spectre is as absolutely dreadful as many people say. And as I sort of originally thought, I've rewatched it and it's much better. I think the film really works in the context of the whole saga. I lo- I thought the ending, the death of Bond specifically, was a genuinely visceral shock, even though it was something that I had predicted for a long time would would happen. So I wasn't I wasn't surprised, but I was still shocked by that by that moment, and in particular the manner of his death, the way the metaphor sort of becomes a literal reality everyone i touch dies and so i'm going to decide not to i'm going to decide to sacrifice myself instead of blah you know going on in a blasé manner and and um wreaking destruction everywhere i go so i thought that was a really good closing of the circle and it was also interesting that he dies via essentially friendly fire you know um technology blasting him out of existence and uh it felt it felt a sort of fitting way to go um 
and yet it's a sort of kind of there was a, there was a genuine tragedy to it so i was really pleased with that <laughs> pleased with it <laughs> obviously i was really uh, uh i was moved by it i thought it was touching i thought it succeeded in what it did and it sort of retrospectively made the whole film much better than um than i had initially been thinking i also thought i was interested to hear paul paul t- talk about how the each action set piece or each had a different mood and tone because i thought that was very true i thought it wasn't as actiony as bond usually is and i thought the set pieces were were really atmospheric rather than just you know balls to the wall action stuff it's this wasn't going to be fast and furious nine it was there was a real you know that i loved the bit in the wood for instance with the mist uh, and everything i liked the italian opening um, uh, which uh, a student of mine recently said that they had actually gone down and watched them film it by by sheer chance they were filming it, and she was very surprised by how slow the cars were going through the town. That they they filmed it going through very slow, well, very slowly, much slower than it seems to be on on screen. But uh, and then the movie magic steps in. I assume. Um, I really loved Daniel Craig's performance, and I think overall his tenure as Bond has been absolutely superb. I'm really impressed by what he's done and what he's managed to achieve. It's a genuine achievement and I think um, when all is said and done there'll be a real sense that um, Daniel Craig has and and obviously the filmmakers who have all been responsible around his his period um, have really elevated Bond and taken him somewhere that you know, as good as Timothy Dalton or Pierce Brosnan uh, were, there was still a sense that they there was a half-heartedness by about their reinvention of Bond. Um, so it was really good to to see that. I'm really uh, I, I think ultimately I was really satisfied, and I'm really looking forward to doing too many really. Sorry about that, but I am looking forward to sort of marathoning you know from casino royale to no time to die sort of one long weekend um you know maybe at christmas i'm not sure when the blu-ray will be out but uh <laughs> that that it, to watch them all one after the other i think would give uh would give a real sense of of what this achievement actually means um it's kind of harry potter isn't it really i said that's the i think that was the model I'm not sure if it was conscious or unconscious, but they've sort of created a Harry Potter through line of someone who's an apprentice at the beginning and by the end has become, you know, the tired, tired old geezer ready to ready to lay down his arms. Uh, and in this case, his life. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, I'd be interested to hear what any of you guys thought of it. If you wish, please, um, you can contact me uh, via Twitter, my my. Uh, handle is at Dr. Jonty, D-R-J-O-N-T-Y. And if you like the podcast, please remember to tune in, like, subscribe, spread the word, wave banners at football matches, hire airplanes and skywrite the, uh, the hyperlink across the sky for anybody to click. Okay, thank you very much. Talk to you soon and take care.